want to get back to your work, yes. the writing work. In The Father of All Things, you remarked on how your father was depicted in Philip Caputo's A Rumor of War, where Caputo, he remarks that your father's very funny in telling all these jokes to the other soldiers in the face of tragedy. Uh, you wrote back then, I saw the still normal man my father could have become, a man with the average sadnesses. Uh, I'm wondering if, if assembling the essays for this collection was in some weird way an effort to look at yourself in the same way. Do you feel that you saw a younger Tom with uh, these average sadnesses or anything like this. Um, you know, some image of what your life could have become. I, I mean, I also note this because there's an interesting uh, sentence you write in Unflowered Aloes, the first one, the youngest one, where you say, for intellectuals, destiny as it applies to life is a ludicrous thought, but destiny as it applies to works of fiction and poetry goes largely unquestioned. So do you just subscribe to any peculiar destiny these days? Uh, what, what of this? The earlier essays are the ones that I was most hesitant to include in the book at all. Yeah. Um, they're basically where they were... I mean, I'm sure you know the same. When you look at your own stuff from... Stuff that's older than, say, five years, you're basically... It's this, it's a stranger's work, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I once imagined that if I ever did a nonfiction thing, I'd have, like, all the pieces I ever wrote, and it would be a big, chunky thing. No one wanted to do that, obviously. But there's a lot of essays that I could have included, but I didn't just because they were so sloppy in their thinking and and the, they were so because uh, here you do what I'm saying now it gets into Terry of self self congrat it gets into self congratulatory territory because the presupposition is that your recent work is not perfect yeah <laughs> and that, that's not what I'm trying to say but I think you can see in the essays and I noticed this when I was you know going over them again is a journey from someone who has become gradually um, more comfortable not presenting himself as a Wallace-like buffoon and, and actually becoming someone who is able to be present in a piece and I hope be honest and not have these kinds of ridiculous squirting boutonniere moments where you're des somewhat desperately trying to get the reader's affection and attention. So I think I've become a less needy presence. Yeah. And I think my interests... Um, I, I, I feel like when I'm talking about intellectuals in that first piece, I mean, all the stuff I said, I more or less believe, but um, I was a, pro a somewhat self-serious person then, you know, and I was working for this literary house. And uh, you can see the tone kind of varies in a lot of the pieces, and that the tone is often directly um, reflective of, like, where I was living even physically and experiences I'd gone through. And... Um, maybe the more average experiences I'd had until that point, I think you, there's a temptation to actually make more of your experience than can really be made of it. And the one, the Escanaba essay, which is the, the second essay in the book about watching Jeff Daniels make this movie of my hometown, I read it aloud for at book court the other night, and I kind of like kept stopping and apologizing yeah. to the audience almost for the histrionic tone I, a I bit. think most writers of personal journalism or confessional essays tend to do that, especially if it's been a long while. Yeah. I know Jonathan Ames does that. I've seen other writers do that. that I'm glad I'm not alone there. They're yeah. embarrassed by, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote this about myself. I think that's a very human yeah. reaction. Yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, I have to say, I mean, if, if the yardstick here, in comparison to your father, is yourself... You know, do you see the typical sadnesses at all that you saw? Has Caputo depicted your father or anything like that? Or, um, I don't know. I do know that, like some of the experiences I had immediately after uh, September 11th, and then covering, you know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, that um, I became a lot more concerned with making my work as funny as possible, <laughs> um, and maybe that was just an attempt to like. Uh, not succumb to, to a kind of glumness about now this is just veering off into territory that I'm not even sure I understand but I became way less interested in the kind of essay I would have written like Unflowered Aloes like a, a, a puckish but tart yeah. stately essay yeah. right and I just became more interested in stuff that kind of puts puts it out there on the line emotionally but is primarily concerned with with exploring the absurd and the humorous parts of these 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 people, and I try to do that even in the Werner Herzog essay, which, yeah. you know, he's not the easiest 
subjects in the world to like ring a lot of humor out of, but um, I don't know. I don't. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I I feel like I have not answered your question. At no. All. Well, that's, this is actually all good. Maybe another way to phrase it is this. I mean, there seems to me to have always been some interesting confessional streak in your writing. Um, I think of when you finally spill about your fiance in Chasing the Sea. I think, of course, of the, you know, the ultimate example is probably the last chapter in Extra Lives. I think of your decision in the Jim Harrison essay to basically announce at the end, I'm giving up teaching. Um, these, are, these are really <laughs> bold, but all, I mean, and very bold, quite frankly, uh, ways to find a personal connection uh, into someone who you clearly revere or something like Grand Theft Auto that you clearly revere. And I'm wondering, I mean, why do you feel this need to do this? And why has it been blowing up with, um, I suppose, even more of an extraordinary pronouncement? Hey, I, I went ahead and, and had, a, had this Coke breakdown or I am packing up my life entirely and uh, and maybe if you follow me in the next essay, I'll tell you how <laughs> things are going, right? I mean, you know, it also causes at least this reader to be, fuck, I hope Tom is okay. <laughs> so, I mean, my question is, 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 does, is this an effort to, to draw either long-time or short-term readers into what you're doing? Uh, does, does it provide a greater authenticity? Is it a way of shaking off the, the sort of smarmy, sort of semi-self-confident guy in unflowered aloes, yeah. you know. I mean, what of this? I mean, why? Um, I I think some of this must come from just having started as a fiction writer and being profoundly uninterested in nonfiction for a long time. Yeah. And so, when you're writing fiction, these kind of lightning bolts of revelation are uh, from your own life, like how it, your own experience, and sort of like super injecting that into the into the into the story or the paragraph you're working on. It's easy to do in fiction because there's no, no one asks any questions, right? But that electricity is actually what gives fiction its texture. And without that kind of sensed personal connection uh, between writer and material, even if it's not autobiographical material, there's that electric sense that this voice knows of what it speaks. And for me, uh, informational nonfiction, nonfiction that doesn't have like an identifiable human being in it, I mean, I could, I could not care less about reading that stuff. And so I realize I confess things in my pieces not out of any even real objective or desire. It just, it just seems to be the move that I'm driven to make. Like, I didn't have any idea when I was writing the Grand Theft Auto essay that I was even going to get into my collapse into cocaine. No idea. I just started writing the essay and it just started coming out. I didn't know I was even going to get into the quitting. I'm quitting my teaching thing and, and literally until the moment I got there. So, believe it or not, the, those moves are like, I'm almost powerless to not do them in some strange way they're never i hope that you know and here and here's my defense teaching doesn't come up in that whole essay until the, <laughs> until the yeah. very end so i hope structurally i'm i'm proving my point that that um and i could have gone back but and in like, the age of google <laughs> i mean we yeah. can find out the reader can find out oh tom was teaching somewhere wait what the hell he's no longer teaching and he's telling us this in his essay it's it's i mean part of me almost wants to say in an age where that covenant of, of author-reader privacy is diminishing, where the author is now expected to tell everything about himself because everybody is spilling everything about themselves on, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr, on whatever. Um, and I'm uncomfortable with that idea, too, because I feel that, you know, why, why must the author confess everything? I mean, you know, unless it's pertinent to the piece. This is why I, I say to myself, well, the bigger leap, you know, I mean, if you don't know where it comes from, and it sometimes gets out of there. I, I mean, you know, it seems like you're working in, in terrain that's very uncontrolled. What do you do to make sure you don't say too much? Um, decorum. Um, <laughs> my girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> what army, what <laughs> vanguard is there to prevent you? <laughs> hey, Tom, you can't say this. <laughs> well, I don't think any, I mean, I really, yeah. I think like less than 1% of my readers like are keeping track of me, right? And, and so, 
these these in in one sense I'm assuming that everyone who reads something of mine is coming to me for the first time. Yeah. And so I don't presume that they have any concern for what's gone on before with me and and like especially with my video game book. I mean, I think a lot of people read it not even knowing that I'd had this career as a as a, like a literary writer before that. So, um I'm just assuming that the blank is that the slate is blank and I guess maybe these bombs get dropped in there to kind of um assert some kind of uh well I guess it's reasserting the the pact of intimacy between the reader and the writer and that intimacy is is not always there in nonfiction yeah it's not even really expected and it's what's weird is that as a nonfiction writer you start off with this with this utterly unearned intimacy which is the intimacy that what I'm telling you the truth and that's like the moral bond between a fiction nonfiction reader and a nonfiction writer what I'm telling you is true and so you start on this very intimate terrain and then I think a lot of nonfiction writers never really wander off that train you know they you that that's enough yeah and for me, it's not enough. On the other hand, the extreme version of that would be someone like John Degada or Mike Daisy, who basically throw that trust into the water and piss a lot of people off. And perhaps, depending upon where your point of view is, kind of uh, destroy their credibility as someone who can share a story or who can even share some um, acceptable version of the truth if that makes any sense i mean you know yeah. it seems to me that 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 your confessional streak is just it is both bomb dropping but also just enough for us to have to to maintain that covenant yet yet i know you've also taught uh, about a mountain at, at portland and so forth so i mean you know um do you see yourself possibly entering into the sort of hey i really wasn't telling the truth about this fuck you <laughs> <laughs> well here here's here's an interesting uh point that I will make that I will stand by. I never anymore write magazine pieces in kind of magazine journalism present tense. Ever. Yeah. I I kind of loathe the nonfiction present tense. And I loathe it because especially if you're writing about yourself, when you write in the present tense, you are almost foreclosing any possibility of reflection. And you almost don't have to account for your decisions or your behaviors. And that's why all bad behavior memoirs are always written in the present tense. I slapped the hooker, then I did another line, then I staggered out and slept with the cab driver, you know? And, and now, oh, I slap the hooker, step outside, I snort another line of coke, I sit down, the cab driver, you no, know, I'm doing this in present tense, but you turn that into past tense and suddenly it doesn't work anymore. Now it just seems ghoulish, and and th there's no sensationalistic fizziness to it, and you just have a reader that's just saying, "Well, wait a minute, <laughs> why did you do these things?" Right? So you'll notice that 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 I never ever ever write in the present tense when it comes to nonfiction, and I really 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 strive when I do go into confessional mode to to keep part of the partition up. I have no interest in revealing the. The details of my life if they're not relevant to what I'm actually writing about and I hope that would would distinguish me from some people who seem compulsively confessional that I would like to think the stuff that I'm letting loose has a direct emotional bearing on the material that's under investigation so let's talk about Twitter and stuff um, the most pretentious thing I said recently which I was called on and almost beaten up for friends the other night. Someone asked me why I have a website. And I said, my books are my website, you know. <laughs> and, and it's You a, don't have a Twitter account. I don't have a I Twitter account. I'm on Facebook. I'm on that, Facebook, yeah. but that's just mostly to just, you know. To prevent any sort of obsessiveness from spilling over. Well, well, fa yeah, like, fa like fans get in touch with you through Facebook. Yeah. And you get like, and you meet a lot of like people that you would never otherwise have any contact with. So that I'm really on Facebook just because occasionally, like once or twice a month, a reader will say, hey, I really liked this or that. And that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. But I will never have a Twitter account because I just don't trust myself to be responsible, you know. Uh, on the page, you can be responsible. There's all these check checkpoints that you have to walk through before something actually gets out there into the world, right? And I have this compulsively sherry quality to my voice as a writer and as a person and um i share your concern that twitter scares the, the pants off of me and i've just seen so many people i know and admire 
I mean, is there anything more more humiliating than a deleted tweet? Is well, there anything more Soviet? And, and I mean, and, the only uh, re- the only way I, I mean, I will sometimes delete a tweet if I uh, if I am in a bad mood and I've and I've I'm, and that's my problem too. Uh, you know, it's why I walk so much. <laughs> no, but but I mean, you know, um, on the other hand, is a deleted tweet 140 characters? Are we are we allowing more imports yeah. to this than, than, than really it, what it is. I mean, you know, to my mind, I will delete a tweet if I've misspelled a name because, of course, you know, if you're doing it from some sort of mobile device, misspellings are inevitable and it's just, oh, God, you know. But on the other hand, it is extremely, extremely helpful, especially with Storify, for journalism. It's extremely helpful in, in showing people uh, a trail which they can actually pick up off of. It's extremely helpful in, in trying to understand people's immediate feelings, like for example, the fact that there was no fiction winner for the Pulitzer Prize the other day. I was just trolling the, twi- the Twitter comments about that. And, oh, yeah. and, and that's when I love Twitter. Yes. Watching smart people zing. I, I know, I've mentioned you and you've emailed me. I mean, why, <laughs> when in fact I, I didn't mean anything by it. So, so, I mean, here's the thing. Why are you so obsessive about what people say about you? If about me? Yeah, about you or anything else. Well, I, mean, I was, uh, well, we should, you, you may, we, we got in a slight, <laughs> a slight tip. You, you, I mean, it was, it was, it was not meant to be. No, no. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. Our, our, ours is a love whose day is ever May, right? Yes, uh, exactly. And the only reason I responded is because I, I like you. And, yeah. and I, 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 I just felt uh, zinged. And I was like, well, does, does Ed dislike me now? <laughs> you know? And so, no, so, no of course I mean, not. It's, 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 and I wasn't even ragging on you. And, we, sort of and, we, like, and, yeah. and we settled it. And it of was, course. And, and it was fine. I had, I had to send you, you know, Lear. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you know, this is what I'm saying. It's like uh, you, you say that you have to be careful about controlling your uh, addictive or obsessive personalities. Uh, yet, on some level, there is a workaround here where you are constantly using Twitter search. I, 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 I say Not constantly. Here. Constantly. Not constantly. <laughs> All right. No, I promise that. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that that's not something I do constantly. Um, because whenever I do do it, um, you inevitably find mean things about you. And, yeah. And I'm, I don't like that. Uh, it's not pleasant knowing people you've never met don't like you. <laughs> you know, that's, that's nothing I want to revel in, you know. Well, why don't you just basically not even pay attention to what people say about you? I mean, you know, some, a lot of authors do do that because it's the only way they can keep their voice original and alive. I do a fairly good job of that. I mean, I do a fairly good job of not paying attention. Um, but sometimes, you know, you get zinged and um, sometimes you, if it's an unjust zing and it's someone that you know, and I'm talking about you here. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a place to contact that person privately and say, hey, you know, what, what's going on? Yeah. Um, because Twitter is a public forum. And, and like I'll tell you, <laughs> once I did a search on Goodreads uh, for, for my stuff, checking reviews. Um, and this was like a, f- a few years ago. And one of my best friends in the world, uh, I clicked on his name because I saw him on Goodreads, like your friend. Bob, and I saw that he'd given like my books two and two stars. And I was yeah. like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I hadn't talked talk to him in a couple of years. And I emailed him. I'm like, dude, what? And he's like, I didn't like him. And I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, and I was like, that's... See, uh, and this is why I've had to delete my Goodreads account. Because I cannot, in good conscience... Uh, give a dishonest rating or right. I could not and then I and I I had had this similar situation authors I revered there was one book I didn't love and then they went ahead and said oh god you bastard you've stabbed me in the back and I I can't I can't do that anymore but similarly this also leads I mean well since we're on the subject I will say Robert D Kaplan all right you have an essay in this book but this isn't the first time that you have written about Kaplan. There's a, a, about a four to five page section in Chasing, Chasing the, the Sea. sea. Yeah. So, you know, the guy was named last year as one of the top 100 influencers by Foreign Policy magazine. Why did you feel the need to subject yourself to this guy who you didn't like, reading all of his books? I mean, you know, what does this serve the universe? I mean, what what is the purpose of something like this? How does it make you feel good? I mean, it doesn't seem to me like it would be your kind of idea of fun, you know? So why 
and, and you've already done it. Were you egged on to to, to do it again? No, I mean, it was that book, Imperial Grunts. Yeah. Uh, when it came out, it made me so angry. Yeah. And so disgusted that, um, and I'm not going to dress this up in anything other than. Uh, I was compelled by my sense of literary decency to lay into a writer that I thought was actually poisoning. Um, he has way more readers than I do, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think a lot of readers read his stuff for the straight dope about how soldiers think. Well, fuck that, because they don't, Robert Kaplan thinks like that. Soldiers don't necessarily think like that. And since he was such a prominent lay voice about foreign policy issues, and he still is... I, I just had this strange sense of knight errant duty to like do my best to 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 write to take his work seriously enough to survey the whole thing and find the places where where I just don't even think he's honest. So do I feel great about having written that essay? Um, I mean, I'm proud of that essay. I think it's a good essay. But no, I didn't get like pleasure out of it. Well, there's a few lines I got pleasure out of, but um, uh, I just I view I view him as a as a dishonest and 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 unhelpful voice on the stuff that he writes about. So sure, but did, I mean, tell me, did did does, does, did it seem uh, like disingenuous? Uh, no, no. I mean, I, I get why you wrote the essay i get why you would feel the need to to voice anger towards this i'm not exactly the world's greatest catholic fan myself <laughs> on the other hand i also ask well you have all this time at your disposal and this guy's written many books why would you subject yourself to reading someone so miserable that you can't really push off the earth because as you say he has more readers than you why would you spend so much of your time doing that when you know there are other writers who you could happily immerse yourself in or uh, or, or you know some unknown similar to you know rescuing Paulo <laughs> Fox from the from from the uh, from the dustbin of history right you know I mean that seems to me uh, your mo and it's interesting reading the Kaplan piece that that you would you would engage in such fear. I mean, that, the thing is that, and also the uh, the Underground Literary Alliance piece, which was a very strange trip back in time, because I'm like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> there was a time that the literary world was dangerous, right? <laughs> Where people were like, oh my God, Rankless is going to show up. Um, you know, are you are you done with this whole crusader bit? I mean, you know, why can't you just sort of remain silent and allow these people to eventually fade away? Because you know. Even literature is ephemeral to some degree. Even foreign policy wonks who write from an uninformed basis, they're going to die, right? The earth itself is the most ephemeral. Um, uh, yeah, no. Um, look, I've written a couple really negative reviews in the New York Times book review. Yeah. And both times that happened, they were books that came in that I was expecting to like. And like you, when you read something and you have a viscerally unpleasant reaction to yeah. it, your duty to yourself, to the book, and to the reader is to be as honest about your subjective reading experience as possible. One of those books, which is such a shame, and I don't know if he listens to your show, but I hope he does, is Scott Spencer. And I wrote, like, just the meanest review of a, And he's a writer I really genuinely like and respect, but that book was such a turd that I just couldn't restrain myself. I'm not saying this is a good quality. Yeah. I'm not saying my best quality as a writer was, was on display in the Kaplan piece. I stand by the piece because... I haven't read the piece that did that to Kaplan, and I wanted to. That was it. Yeah. I'd read people take him apart on a book-to-book basis, but never the whole yeah. the whole swath. You can um, always recuse yourself, though, if it's a writer you like. I mean, I have. I, I, there, there are writers I, I you know, I've said I, I love this writer, and I also have some sense of, well, this writer's going through a rough patch. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's, it's something I learned the hard way, quite frankly. I, you know, and, it, and I don't necessarily think that's nece- necessarily... Uh, a dishonest move, um, you know, especially if you're still writing honestly in plenty of other topics, right? No, I, th- I, th- I think that's a that's a totally valid thing. I didn't recuse myself. Maybe I should have. Um, Would you recuse yourself now if you were to given that same situation? Or? The last really negative review was of this guy, um, uh, Season of Ash, Jorge Vol- Volpe. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a pretty mean review because I really hated the book. And then he and he, we exchanged uh, on 
uh, on one of the blogs, literary blogs, I can't remember which one, and reading his response, I felt so bad because I'd caused him and his publisher house, which is a book, a house doing stuff in translation. Yeah. What did that review accomplish other than hurt someone's feelings and like completely torpedo that book's commercial chances? That is the book I go back to now when I'm thinking about writing a review. And that's the book I think of when I'm like, what kind of, and I'm going to sound new age here and I hate sentences like this what kind of energy does this generate in in our world so yeah that made me a lot more mindful and i don't think i would ever i don't ever want to write a negative review like that again because who cares do you do you think there's still a mean streak in your writing that you're doing your best to control in any way um i think the mean streak i had in my writing is almost gone it doesn't interest me anymore but you did include the Kaplan piece in this. I mean, granted, that's for some, I think, virtues and so forth. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, you know, it is interesting that you did decide to include that as well as the Underground Literary Alliance essay. Well, the uh, Underground Literary Alliance essay was my attempt to take them seriously and actually extend the some empathy to them when, when nobody had, you know? Yeah. Nobody on our side of things had had really tried to... Um, entertain the possibility that some of their complaints were well. No, that's not true. Some people did, but you know what I mean. I mean, I don't no, think that's I, a, I don't yeah. think that's a particularly mean essay at all. Well, I think I think the one thing about that, and, and you you do come to grips with the fact that there is some poverty that is contained within their writing. But even as you're trying to understand, wow, there's actually a voice here that is valid, that is underrepresented in American fiction. You also say, well, the writing is bad, or their behavior is bad. And in light of the fact that you point out in the first essay about how pretty much all literary people are outsiders, and also, I believe in this ULA essay, you you point out how, well, writers understand that they're all freaky and so forth, so they kind of put up with each other. I'm paraphrasing greatly. I <laughs> you, apologize. You read very carefully, um, my friend. Yeah. You know, this, this leads me to ask, you know, whether really you were trying to empathize with the ULA. I mean, it seems to me that, like, George Plimpton, of course, makes this effort to invite them in, and, of course, they behave boorishly. But, on the other hand, haven't we all behaved boorishly at some point in time? Don't we have an obligation to try harder, especially today when nobody's taking chances uh, nearly as much, I I would argue, and you're dealing with a publishing system that is extremely... um, close to experimentalism or yeah. to expanding possibilities. I mean, don't we have a duty even as journalists or as writers to to try to invite these people in and to try to listen to them and, and get a dialogue and go through the pain of, of an insulting bore, <laughs> basically going ahead and spitting in our face and getting him to, to maybe laugh at our jokes instead, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, but I think... Uh, Carl Wenkless or once is it Wenkless or Wenkless? Wenkless, Wenkless. I've said I've people say Wenkless where I'm from, but <laughs> I think um, he is a, a person who could never be satisfied with anything that could ever be given him, and I don't think he was an honest debater. I mean, he, you know, did his best to make my life as miserable as he possibly could after yeah. I wrote that essay, and um, and I, I think. You can't negotiate with someone who's going to crap in the room because mm-hmm. the room will smell like crap and, and no one will want to to be in that room anymore. He's, he's you know, in pickup artist lingo, he's a room wrecker. He goes into the room and he wrecks it for yeah. everyone. So I don't think there was any negotiating with him. Is there negotiating with people like him who come from his social milieu? Absolutely. I mean, most of the published writers I know are as embittered about publishing system as those guys are. Yeah. I mean, everyone else has kind of become them in the, in the 10 years since that essay has come out. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, but maybe in the literary world, there's something comparable to... I'm not sure if you've read Catherine Boo's latest book, uh, Behind the Beautiful... No. Oh, of yeah. course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fantastic because you're able to see these trash collectors in Mumbai off these off the out, outskirts and you really empathize with them and you really understand that even though they're impoverished for them like the ability to eat rats is a step up right that's like you know upward mobility for them and i'm wondering if 
this might also be the case in the literary world. You know, I mean, I, I hate to, to draw such a <laughs> such a brash comparison, but but the 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 fact of the matter is, is that you know, I I don't know. I mean, don't we have a duty to offer some kind of a hand to these people, even when they shit on our face? Or? To the ULA specifically? Yeah, or to you... ULA or anybody. I mean, especially. I mean, yes, because since we all share this common belief, that, uh, these common concerns about what where the publishing system is right now, you know? I would be interested if... I mean, there is no, there's no ULA anymore, right? And there's not even anyone making that kind of noise in a semi-public way. I don't know if it's because all those people just lost interest and moved on, or, or, if, or if it's just so hopeless for people who perceive themselves as being, you know, um, never being invited to that particular ball again uh, i don't know but um you still have to write well yeah you kind of still have to write well i mean half what you're saying i just yeah i just did an interview i hate repeating myself but the sad fact of the matter is in any communicative medium in which human entertainment isn't an important part of it like how you say a thing is, is as important as what's being said so you can be the most sincere, lovely person in the world, and if you're not able to actually write as well as as the people you claim to loathe, then you're never going to have a chance. And I don't, I don't. Our creativity is not a. It's. It's not a free pass. It's not a free pass, and and it's you know it's egalitarian in the sense that a kid from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is to say myself, can, you know unexpectedly find himself a quote literary insider which i don't even know if i am but um i mean if so i look at that as, as saying that was my ultimate point of refutation uh, uh, refutation to, to to the underground literary alliance look i didn't i didn't know a soul when i came here you know it, it it's not it's not the wall is not that high <laughs> it's it's not even very well protected <laughs> you know um so, but at the same time, uh, it's easy for you to say when you're inside the keep, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's the other question. I mean, how much do you think that you or the literary world should tolerate in terms of bad behavior? I mean, if, we, if we're all outsiders of varying stripes. But then again, you get into issues of circles. There are certain circles who completely close themselves off to me. Um, I don't take it personally. I treat at least I try not to. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and I know I will never be a part of that, but that's fine because I at least have my own circle of people and you know I would hope for there to be a Venn diagram where there are happy points of, uh, uh, of camaraderie and so forth. But the fact, fact remains is that the literary world depending upon what you call the literary world, is really founded and built and run on competition. So um, it's the old phrase. People will fight long and hard for such a small scrap of territory. And, and I mean, you know, and, and I've had people stab me in the back. You've had people stab you in the back, I'm sure. Uh, you know, so what should we tolerate, do you think? Or is this just a ineluctable quality of being a writer these days or or being yeah. or being in your office yes. or you know, working in construction i mean i don't think it's it's any different than any other let's talk about the circles thing because this is interesting would you want to i've i had another point about how weird it is that publishing like the the star systems that exist there's like an mfa star system there's an actual sales star system and yeah. then there's a new york city centric publishing star system and what's interesting about there's almost no overlap between those three yeah. groups of people like writers who are huge in the mfa circuit sure uh, like are not any really anything anyone would talk about in like a new york literary party and vice versa and then and then there's the people whose books actually sell yeah. and of course they're beneath mention amongst you know to to, yeah. to both groups yeah. and what i find is that there's you know the famous there is no there there there's almost eerily no there there when you're talking about like what success actually means for a writer these days yeah does it mean having 15,000 twitter followers or does it mean having a book that you know, sells, or does it mean like winning a prize? I mean, who who knows? I think you've set your own terms, don't you? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, if if I get an email from someone who says, uh, you know, the essay you wrote really moved me, or I went ahead and, and bought like three of this guy's books because I listened to your Bat Segundo show, which I get, and that just blows me away. I'm like, wow. The fact I, I've I've had people like you know make Bat Segundo t-shirts and send photos to me. That's that that's incredible. I mean, you know. That to me would be all the 
phrase that that I would need. But what? But what about you? I mean, you know, do do you need to have a constant influx of some kind? No, I am absolutely delighted that I get to spend most of my time writing. That to me means that I, whatever this game is, I feel like I've won. You know, yeah. uh, I get to spend my time writing. I mean, that what a incredible gift. While we're on the subject, in 2012, I would think that there really is no longer any monolithic power like the New York Times Book Review, as you state in an essay. I mean, you know, when you account for things like Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose, which was not reviewed by the Times, um, or even your negative review of Cloud Atlas, which did nothing to impair (laughs) people like me from going apeshit about David Mitchell. Um, I have since read his other books, and I love them. Okay. Um, I did not like Cloud Atlas, but I loved Black Swan Green. Um, loved it. Yeah. Um, the, the, the 1000 Summers. Loved that. So I, I'm a Mitchell fan. Sure. Well, okay. With the stipulation there, the question is, is uh, are we past a point in American cultural history when there is any form of monolithic thumbs up, thumbs down that could really destroy a piece of work in any kind of medium. It would seem to me that since we're all chatting with each other and we're all sharing opinions and there are people who love things and hate things, that this is, you know, the Goodreads vibe may not necessarily, uh, it almost has more of an effect than, say, the New York Times Book Review or, 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 or whatever. I mean, it, I don't know. I mean, should we give a damn about critical culture aside from the fact that, oh, well, you know, reading what your thoughts are on, on someone, I'm probably going to read it, or reading what, you know, James Wood has to say about someone would interest me, even if I disagree with it. On the other hand, it does nothing really to affect the sales reputation of an author, or can it? I mean, can we see a situation which, like you know, Dwight McDonald's by Cousins Possessed, could really kill an <laughs> author's career? Or, or, or you know, why, why is the monolithic power uh, so important? It keeps cropping up in many of these essays, and I'm wondering if it, if it even exists. I don't think it exists yeah, anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it, I think it. I think it was just barely hanging on when I wrote that sentence in, in 2000. Yeah. And no, I don't. I don't think there is anymore. And and here's what I can't decide. You tell me. I can't decide if literary culture is healthier than ever, or like a starving, dying baby chick. You know. It, can, can it be both? Maybe it could be both, but. It's, it's weird, right? Like, in one hand, it seems like there's more vibrant discussion and more people talking, and it seems way more democratic, and, you know, uh, there's just more, like, super smart young critics out, yeah. th- out there it's writing great pieces about books. And yet, at the same time, like, just, like, my, my very, my dear friend Dan Josephson. Yeah. It's like my best writer friend. He wrote this book that he tried selling for four years. Yeah, and he and and he had a blurb from DFW, and he finally. It took him four years. Yeah, and he couldn't even get an agent. Yeah, and it's an amazing novel, and I really recommend it to you. Well, we can look at it later. Yeah. So that, like, on one hand, there seems to be more stuff being said, and more people putatively buying consuming books but the actual commercial apparatus intended to provide grist for those particular mills seems like a boarded up you know window soaped abandoned factory so to mix my metaphors horribly so i i don't really know what what is happening with books now i mean do you have any thoughts on this i do i mean what is happening is that I would argue there are too many long-form critical mechanisms. There is no one place to go. There was a time, maybe as recently as four or five years ago, when you could, in fact, keep tabs online and be sure to read what everybody is reading. Um, Now you've got the LA Review of Books, you've got the Rumpus, you've got the Millions, you've got uh, the group blog, I would argue, pretty much destroyed any ability to uh, keep tabs. I mean, now the act of keeping tabs on what people have to say, uh, which is why I find Twitter so helpful because it's so bite-sized, it's become a full-time job. And uh, my response to that has been, you know, I I don't have time for this. I'm just going to read books. If people send me a book or email me, I'll just take a look at that. Um, if If someone I know says, hey, this is a great book, I'll probably check it out. Uh, but I just don't have 
the time to constantly comment and constantly um, write my opinion about something that is really fairly superficial in the long run, uh, when in fact we're appending commentary to commentary and not in relation to the book, which is the most important thing. I guess it's one of the reasons why I insist on doing these long-ass shows, mm -hmm. <laughs> because to me, maybe I'm guilty of the same thing by by creating too many of these and making it a situation where, I mean, you know, I've got 450 of these fucking things, right? So, so, you know, that's, uh, that you would, it would take you a week to listen to all these things, a week of your life. So maybe I'm, I'm part of the problem, but I also know that, that it helps other readers get a sense of who the author is and it, and it, it actually unpacks the work more, um, you know. So that, to my mind, would be the, the problem because it is so so operative around you know coteries and clacks you cannot have uh you know like your friend's book here right uh this book doesn't get the attention that it deserves because or it's a fluke as as you say uh in in the first essay in this um i don't know i mean maybe maybe what we're really talking about is is this problem and i'm and i should be telling you talk no no, no 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 um the, the maybe the problem we have is that almost every medium in the internet age has created an additional time commitment. And maybe maybe that's what, in some sense, is crippling culture. What do you think? I think I read a magnitude more books before I had internet at home. Yeah. That's what I think. And if I could figure out some magical way to um, go into an internet proof room <laughs> that locked me in for like four or five hours a day, I would be a much happier person. So I think you're absolutely right. The, the things that are allowing us all these access to these things we love are actually, they're creating their own gravities that actually are holding you back from getting to the planet you're trying to reach, right? But shouldn't your writing be enough? I mean, shouldn't that be enough of a distraction to not go on the internet or should you have some sort of self-control i mean you know i, I mean writing is very hard yeah, I, know, I, I know that i know that and uh, and, and i know you've hard. done you've done a good deal but i know i mean i it's four novels that you you wrote yeah yeah are you going to go back on the fiction train oh yeah i'm i'm i have another collection that's almost oh, okay. that's almost done i don't know if anyone's going to want to do it um yeah we'll find out soonish but um yeah, I still write stories. I'm not. I'm not going to write novels. I've decided. I'm just going to write nonfiction books and story collections that nobody wants. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so. But I mean, you know, why why is the internet so distracting for you? Why not just I mean, not have a Facebook page? You don't have to do this, do you? No, it's true. I mean, you try, ever try going offline? I do. It's weird. It's one of the reasons I like traveling. Writing is weird. <laughs> I mean, reading in a certain sense is weird. Maybe the act of, of not having a smartphone or the act of just listening to the world has become a subversive, eccentric act. Well, this is the one thing the video games have done to me that I do resent, which is, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously a big reader. I've always been a big reader. And I have any book that I pick up I have to fight my way out of a kind of mild case of ADD before I can really engage. I used to be able to engage immediately. And because our brains get rewired, obviously, by certain, I mean, and game makers count on this, that our brains get actually re neurologically rewired yeah. by electronic interfaces, that there is something so wonderfully homely about sitting down with a book that it takes me 10, 15, sometimes 20 pages, even when I'm really enjoying something, to banish all of the electronic ghosts swirling around in my head. I have to fight my way out of them. And, I, and that is the most compelling reason for me to like never touch another video game again, because it's actually damaged some of my, some reading part of my brain. Yeah. So what's the answer to that? You stop doing one thing that brings you pleasure and but it's not so bad where I'm actually contemplating that. But it is just something I've noticed. Yeah. Why are the electronic ghosts so strong for you? I mean, I, I think this goes back to my question of the guy who starts off by saying, once upon a time, I wrote in the morning, I went for a jog in the afternoon and wrote it, uh, read at night. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what, what happened to that guy? I mean, I don't think that... He's, he's back, just, baby. He's <laughs> back. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, he I don't think that guy entirely disappeared. I don't think you can say, you can entirely blame it on video games. That's like blaming violence in the UK on a clockwork orange. No, right? no, you know, no, agreed. It's, 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 agreed. There is some sense of personal responsibility. Totally. Here, you know. Totally. No, no, and I would never, ever, ever I mean, the thing I will always hold against The Guardian is they published that piece called The Addiction. Yeah. And that's not a word I ever have used to quantify my relationship to any thing I'm compulsive about other than nicotine. Yeah. Um, I'm chewing nicotine gum right now, dear listeners. Um, I'm getting secondhand chew. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, addiction is its not a word that I find useful. Um, Obsessiveness, though. Obsessiveness is a word I find useful. the problem here. Yeah. And I'm an obsessive person. I mean, I write obsessively. I live obsessively. I, I When I get interested in things, I get really interested in them. When I decide I'm going to write an 11,000-word piece on Robert Kaplan, I write an 11,000-word piece, 11, piece on Robert Kaplan. Um, so I think part of it was just, I mean, I wrote a lot in a pretty short time, and I wrote, like, two pretty long, involving books in, like, a three-year period, right? Yeah. And for certain, I mean, I was just done. I mean, I, I was just out of gas. There was nothing left. Yeah. And rather than read a lot for a, for a couple years, I mostly just played video games. So I did that willingly. I did that with pleasure. I was fascinated. I was really gripped. And my relationship with reading has never quite gotten back to the point where it was earlier in my life. I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world, you know, that I read. Yeah. Did you push yourself too much? I mean, you reached a certain point in life where like, I can't, I don't have that youthful brio anymore. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned this because the one thing I have always been curious about you and is your tendency to drop words like numular <laughs> in your work. Um, less and less the frequently. Yeah, I, know, I know less and less. But, you know, you know hey, at least Cromulent made yeah, it an extra yeah. But, uh, um, you know, you, you point out in, in Chasing the Sea that you had this regimen of learning a minimum of 50 Uzbek words a day. Uh, and, of course, in Extra Lives, you said a thousand words, anything less. And that was anything less than that, and I was lazy. Numbers, achievements, things like this. Oh, you're not, onto, not, you're not onto a, something. You're yeah, onto something. Not, not unlike uh, certain achievements in video games, I guess. Um, Pop. I, I, have... I don't want to get into a gamification uh, uh, segue, but because uh, we have very little time. But I do want to ask. I mean, you know, this achievement-based form uh, of of working with 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 books and writing and so forth. I mean, do you think that that this might actually be one of the reasons, I was wondering if you could kind of get into a little mini history of this, if possible. Mini uh, history of? Of, of how you, uh, you know, setting these very hard, uh, productive goals. And then beating yourself up for not. And beating yourself yeah. up for, yeah, I know. Oh, that's just, I mean, I, I don't think I'm at all unique amongst writers for that. I mean, I've not, I mean, I was slightly bluffing on the thousand words. I mean, I'm not a word counter. Yeah. Um, at all. I never have been. But I like to have written it between four and eight pages a day. I feel like if I can do that, I'm okay. Lately, the tear I've been on with this book about the room, I've been like having 20, 25 page days for, for months because I've just been doing it and doing it, doing it. And so right now I feel like, I mean, I've been writing so much, I haven't, I've barely read a word in, in months. And that's a weird feeling, right? So, um, I'm obviously, and I've, there's, you, would, you would have no other sense would be available to you if you've read my stuff, a very compulsive person. I think it's my best trait, and I think it's my worst trait at the same time. Yeah. I had a friend who called it Bissell mania. When I entered into a stage of Bissell mania, he said it's... it's <laughs> he said it was simultaneously, uh, you know, you're at your most charming, and you're also at your most... Assholic. Uh, yeah, like alienating and 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 like needlessly um, grand, you know. So one nice thing about being thirty-eight years old is uh, and having like a book like this, where you can sort of actually chart some of the grosser stages of Bisselmania as they pass. This is a kind of chronicle of, of it, and, I, and I, I'm very fond of the last Jim Harrison piece. I think it's one of the best things that I've, I've, I've written. And the person who wrote this piece was calm, 
he was entirely within himself and I hope the piece reads like a work of real generosity I hope it does because that was the, that was what I was going for right and, and, a, and a, a piece that's you know simultaneously about me but not prim- about me and Jim Harrison but not primarily about me and this is the kind of voice that as I go forward I want this is the writer I want to be I want to write with this voice yeah and um, and this is a voice that uh, it took me a while to get to but um, I hope that's that kind of a person who knows the enticements of activity, yeah. but is able to recognize the pleasure of stillness, I would say. But how much of the Bisselmania went into the Harrison piece? Nah. I don't think any, any really. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it fast. Sure. So maybe there's a little dose of Bisselmania yeah, in there. Yeah, but, yeah. but, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I I'm, I'm a, well, it's also I'm in a happy, stable, committed relationship sure. with Trisha, whom you'll meet in a minute. And, you know, just to completely bore readers to death, I cannot overstate the importance of finding the person that you actually want to be with. Yeah. That changes everything. And, and uh, for me, you know, we've been together for three years now. That, that's been uh, the single most life-changing quality of my, my writing and, 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 and my personality. Be common only in your life, so you can be violent and original in your work. Um, no, I think it's different than that. I think you can still be a little violent in your life, <laughs> but if you're, but but if it's if it's someone who's able to tell you too violent, <laughs> you know, stop now. Yeah, um, it's never about becoming bourgeois, right? That's that's what the whole point of the, the of that. Stability is not necessarily class-related. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stability, ex- exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. it has nothing Having a stable relationship, you can be on almost any income strata. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's all about having emotional stability. Sure. It has nothing to do with where you live or what t- city you're in. It's just, it's just about learning. Um, well, I'm just going to start saying dippy, trekly things. So we'll, we'll stop it there. Okay, well. Well, I, on that on that note of stability, we've been talking quite a long while. But thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to chat. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Just another frozen kid who's trying to make it through tonight. Ordinary pens and notebooks ain't no ordinary. All the freaked out measures I took Trying to make you sick or smile Ordinary don't mean nothing No how look what's ordinary now It's got a magic marker stain on its face And it needs a shower There's something sweet waiting